Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. They just didn't want to be on his side on anything. Mm -hmm. The the idea of finding in favor of the defendants just was repulsive to them. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, um, how are you doing today? Well, as you and I were just talking about, we usually record these for the most part at 4 p.m. our time. And we're doing this one at one o'clock. So yeah. I'm feeling punchy. I'm feeling we're, energized. We're very, very energetic. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> this will be, you know, just even better than all of our other shows. Yeah, because uh, I, I do want people to know that we frequently record them at 4 p.m. on Friday, which I think is cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially when they go a minute past five. But right, luckily, right. our guests are also lovely that it's worth it. But yes, I like absolutely. this one o'clock vibe. I like it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, um, I want to go ahead and introduce our uh, our guest today. We have a great guest today, uh, a friend of ours, a great uh, lawyer here in Georgia in Gwinnett County, Render Freeman. Uh, Render is a partner at Anderson Tate and Carr uh, in Gwinnett County. And uh, Render, how are you doing today at I'm one doing, o'clock? Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm glad we're doing it at one o'clock, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my firm opens the bar at 4 p.m. We're not <laughs> right, doing any right. podcasts at 4 p.m. on Friday. <laughs> You know, I, I did have this idea and we've never done it, but we, maybe one day we'll do it. I did have an idea of like, you know, we that while we were doing the uh, podcast that we would all have a drink, you know, and see see where the conversation goes. And maybe it'd be, you know, even a little bit more lively. Kind of like hot wings. If you've ever seen the hot wings. Oh, yeah. 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 We got to do that. We also I can't believe, Steve, that we were both in New Orleans and we didn't record a podcast there just to see like where it took us. But yeah, there were too many other fun things to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, uh, well, Render, let me uh, let me introduce everybody to you. Give a little bit about your background so everybody can know who who we're talking about, who we're talking to. And obviously, we're talking about a a fantastic uh, trial uh, and and a great trial result in a very, very tough county uh, that Render tried. But as I said, Render Freeman is a partner at Anderson Tate and Carr, uh, and they are based out of Gwinnett County, uh, Duluth, Georgia. And um, that's just outside of Atlanta for our folks outside of Georgia. And um, you can look him up at ATCLawFirm.com. That's ATCLawFirm.com. And uh, so Render has not only tried uh, a bunch of cases uh, all over Georgia with great results, but he is uh, a faculty at the Jerry Spence Trial Lawyers College and faculty at uh, AAJ's Trial Trial College as well, and teaches all over the country on trial tactics and um, and uh, how to get great verdicts like he had in this case. He's also a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates, a great group, um, AV rated, uh, a super lawyer, a graduate uh, from both Colgate undergrad and then uh, UGA Law School. Um, and so, Render, we're uh, we're just uh, so pleased to have you on the show. Well, I'm glad to be in a position that you're curious about a trial that I was involved in. It was a it was a, a great uh, week that we had with the family. Uh, Steve, I would correct one thing that the Trial Lawyers College is no longer affiliated with Jerry Spence. There you know, a, I I think I'd heard something about that. Yeah, yeah so. there was a there was a separation during COVID. You know, so many other things during the big pause kind of people took stock of where they were. And um, so Jerry Spence has his own program that he runs from his ranch. And then the trial lawyers college um, 
is separated from that, but I, I am on the trial lawyers college faculty. Yeah. 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 Well, well, it's a, it's a great group. There's uh, obviously turned out uh, great uh, lawyers all over the country who've, uh, who've gone through that program. Uh, and uh, I've never done it. I've, I've, I've been to some programs with render before and with some of the other folks from, uh, from trial lawyers college, but uh, I know that they put just a ton of time and effort and uh, thought into you know, how to try cases in the absolute best way possible. And, uh, and I know, uh, and Render has been very active in that group. And it's uh, for anybody who's, you know, really wants to dig deep into how to try cases. It's a great group to be involved with. It's a very important part of, uh, of my career and uh, who I am as a person. I actually uh, conveniently uh, was able to spend a week in Washington state in a town called Leavenworth um, with the TLC group. And I chose to be a student at that program. And the entire week was spent exploring your relationship with money and oh, wow. understanding how you feel about money, why you feel that way about money, what your sort of money legacy is in terms of your grandparents, your parents, yourself, your children, so that you can understand, you know, maybe why you've got a little shame or you have a little difficulty in asking a jury for money or holding your head up and with a straight face talking about large quantities of money. And I have a particular case that I'm trying next year where I have to ask for an extraordinary amount of money um, for a, a young man who's a um, quadruple amputee because of a delayed diagnosis and flesh eating mm. bacteria. But it was an unbelievable week. I want them to do the program again and do it uh, in the Southeast. Yeah. You know? And I, I've already talked to a number of people who would jump at the chance to, to look at that. Yeah, it's a it's a really important issue because, um, you know, at the end of the day, when we get in front of a jury, that's what we're that's what we're ultimately doing. But a lot of lawyers really have a hard time asking for uh, money and talking about money. We're all most I mean, most uh, trial lawyers are pretty good at, at, at putting the liability case together at talking about what the defendant did wrong, how great their plans are. But when it just comes down to that, uh, that moment where you are, you know, asking the jury or telling the jury what you would like them to do, uh, it's it, it is it is hard. It, it is hard. And uh, and definitely takes uh, some time and effort and work into into how you uh, present that to the jury. So I think that's uh, I think that is an absolutely uh, great thing to study and uh, and spend some time on. And we talked about it. We talked about it. Obviously, you talk about money during jury selection and, you know, whether people have problems with the idea of giving money to compensate a family for a lost loved one and whether that's a, a, a good idea, whether it's moral, whether it's corrupt, you know, and so we talk about it during jury selection, but then we talk about it in closing argument as well, obviously, but we just had a very con candid conversation. I was fresh off of that week in the woods and <laughs> we had a very candid conversation about the total inadequacy of money. Yeah. You know, it's not good enough, but it's all we have. And so we need to work with it. We need to grapple with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was a, it was um, it was very helpful. And oddly, you know, this might be a little new age crystal, but um, <laughs> uh, the uh, the client that I was working for, Dr. Adam White, grew up in Washington State, a few hours away from where I was doing the work. So that felt that felt good. That felt like it was meant to be. 
Yeah. 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 Well, um, I, I do want to talk about the case. I, I wanted to give everybody uh, who listens to the podcast a little bit of background that maybe uh, I, I may have talked about before, but uh, the very first lawyer that I ever worked for uh, was actually Render's father, uh, Joe, who uh, is an absolute uh, legend, fantastic lawyer, uh, you know, and just, uh, I mean, just a great person to, uh, to take a young lawyer who was, who knew nobody when I came into Georgia. The only way I met your dad, uh, Rinder was because my wife, um, when I, when I got out of law school, my wife started working for a mediation firm and your dad, uh, was a mediator there and they became friends. And she told him, you know, well, my husband just got out of law school and he needs a job. And Joe said, you know, we'll bring him over. And, uh, he couldn't have been a great, uh, greater, uh, mentor. And, uh, and just for anybody who doesn't know who Joe Freeman was, he was, a, I mean, just a sort of larger than life, great trial lawyer. Um, you know, I, what I always loved about Joe was, I mean, he, not only was he just a absolute gentleman, uh, you know, great person, but when you got him in the courtroom, he was just, uh, he was fiery. I mean, he was passionate. Um, you know, nobody, uh, came, you know, came with more passion in the courtroom than, uh, than Render's dad, Joe. Um, and he was, uh, he was a great lawyer to, uh, to start your career under. And, and, um, and it's not just me. I mean, there's lots of, lots of really good trial lawyers in Georgia that came, uh, under Joe's tutelage, Andy Sherfius, who's been on the show, Bill Bird, uh, two fantastic lawyers, uh, came, uh, started out with Joe too. So, uh, anyways, I just Thank wanted to tell Steve. everybody that he's, uh, he, he was, he was absolutely fun, to, fun to start out with and it's fun to learn from and to watch him in court. And I will, I will tell one story about Joe that, uh, you know, we, we, uh, handled a bunch of cases together and, and I was a, a, like, just finished the bar, you know, like straight out of the box, no experience, uh, you know, not knowing what I was doing. And I remember I was helping, we had a motion for summary judgment in federal court and I was helping Joe get ready for the hearing, you know, but you know, Joe is, was the trial lawyer. I mean, he's the one who's, who, who, you know, knows how to present in front of the judge. And literally as we were walking into the courtroom, Joe turns to me and he, he hands the file and he's like, Steve, why don't you take this one? And I was like, (laughs) and I was like, and I I didn't want to say no. So I took it, but I was like, man, he scared me. It was such, it was such a great, uh, great experience, but yeah. So, uh, uh well, Joe render your dad was a big, big figure in my life and in, in the start of my career. And, uh, and I appreciate that. And so, um, so anyways, I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that, uh, knew thank that you. story. Yeah. Thank you. And I, and one of my hopes is that people talk about me, uh, when I'm gone, the way people talk about my dad. Yeah. And people and, and I'm included, of course, among them loved my dad, Jay Sad. I was with Jay Sad the other night and Jay yeah. just always gushes about my dad and how what he meant to him, not just that he was a great lawyer and a nice guy, but how he mentored people and took care of people. Um, Pitt's car uh, yeah. came up under uh, dad's tutelage. A lot of great lawyers, kind of kind of crazy. The yeah. people that made their way through his law firm over the years. But thank you very much. Yeah. Well, and and to me, it was always sort of surprising that, you know, like like I said, I mean, Joe, uh, when I worked for him, I mean, his reputation was solidly established, uh, had been trying cases since the 50s um, and, and had tried 
huge cases. Uh, for anybody that know, Joe did mostly uh, defense side cases, he, but he did a lot of the uh, J.C. Penny uh, uh, fire cases, the pajama uh, cases, the Eli Lilly cases. He tried those nationally. Um, but, you know, and he just took me under his wing and I was, uh, you know, I was a nobody. You know, I mean, I still am a nobody, but I, but a really uh, nobody then. And, well, uh, and Joe I, is I, so, so great. I think his greatest gift was noticing talent. I mean, the, the talent that came through that law firm, somebody knew what to look for in young lawyers and they found it. I mean, it's unbelievable. The people that, that, that yeah. law firm produced. Oh yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Well, um, well, let's talk about this case render. This is, uh, as I said, I want to make sure everybody understands that, uh, the County that you tried this case in, and we'll talk about the case, uh, is green County, Georgia, uh, Greensboro. It's, uh, outside of Athens, Georgia. Um, it is a rural County. It is not known for, uh, being a, plaintiff's friendly uh, venue. It's not known for being uh, necessarily a great place to try cases. Uh, but Render went in there and uh, and we'll talk about this case. The uh, The name of the case was uh, Deborah White, uh, who is the, um, uh, the personal representative and wife of the decedent, Dr. Adam White. Uh, and it was versus uh, a number of defendants, Robert McCommons, Durhamtown Off-Road Park, Durhamtown uh, Farms, uh, uh, Two Rivers Irrevocable Trust uh, and Georgia Trails and Rentals Inc. and Durhamtown Pro Shop Inc. Uh, and it was a um, total verdict of $22 million um, for the um, for the death of Dr. White. Uh, and essentially what happened in this case was back in September of 2019, Dr. White was a uh, an avid motorcycle uh, dirt bike rider and um, and Durhamtown Off-Road Park was a um, place where people would go to ride their ATVs, ride their dirt bikes. They would they could go hunting. It was just this massive piece of, uh, of property uh, that was called a I think it was called Durhamtown Off-Road Resort or something like that, where you could actually camp camp or have your, um, have your RV there. And then you could go hunting, you could go ride your ATVs, you could, uh, do motorcycles, do all kinds of stuff. Uh, and so, uh, Dr. Um, White was riding his, uh, motorcycle. Uh, and at the time that he was riding his motorcycle, the owner, uh, a, a person named Robert McCommons, um, was operating an excavator at the track site, which was uh, a violation of their um, their own internal rules and, and policies. Um, and so that while Dr. White was riding his motorcycle, um, the excavator got stuck as it was trying to uh, get itself out. It knocked a tree over and the tree uh, hit uh, Dr. White right in the face and head as he was going by. Uh, and, and, uh, killed him. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so this was a, uh, a, a tough case in a number of ways, but, um, you know, well, and, and I want to talk about, uh, all, all kinds of things, but, you know, as you might imagine, anybody who rides motorcycles or goes to a place like this, they make you sign a waiver. Uh, they make you, they talk about assumption of the risk, um, and, uh, so it puts a, uh, higher burden, which we'll talk about on the plaintiffs in this case. Uh, but, uh, at the end of the day, uh, Render and his team, uh, were able to, um, to, uh, get a $22 million, um, verdict on behalf of Dr. White, 
Um, and, um, and we'll talk a lot about sort of, you know, what went into this, but, um, but Rinder, one of the thing, places that I wanted to start out with is talk about when a case like this comes into the office, you had, you had to see that it was not going to be an easy case and not in an easy venue. This is a, a well-known, um, a well-known business in that County. Uh, now I, I will say that it looked like that that business had some problems and there had been some other uh, serious injuries there. Uh, and that maybe the owner, I, I don't know, I don't know how, what the owner's reputation was in the County, but, um, but talk about when a, when a case like this comes in, where it happens at a, at a, uh, an off-road track where, you know, you're doing something dangerous. So, you know, start there and then, you know, they make you sign a waiver, uh, you know, and how you decide that to take a case like that, knowing that you're going to have significant obstacles um, to overcome when you're taking that case? Um, well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I refer to this, I've got a couple of these, uh, and it, I, I hope it's okay to say this on the podcast, but it, I call it, a, a, it's a renders pissed off case, <laughs> Yeah. you know? And, uh, I mean, this, your summary is accurate of what we pled and proved in the case. Um, the worst part for the family was that Mr. McCommons denied it. He said, uh, no, there were no witnesses. There was no video. Nobody saw it happen. Only he saw it. And uh, we don't believe Adam, Dr. White, was aware of anything that happened. He was killed instantly. I mean, this tree fell directly in front of his face as he was going by. And we had a biomechanical expert to help establish that. But when we looked at the case and um, and we're uh, you know, going through that process of evaluating whether you can take this case, whether you can be successful for this family, you know, the overriding concern was this family deserves to have the truth be spoken by a jury and we need to hold this guy accountable. And if we you know, one of the things we knew very early on, because that waiver also included a declaration that there is no liability insurance. So mm -hmm. we knew that we were confronting a situation where there was no traditional liability insurance, which ended up being a, actually in, in terms of preparing mentally for the trial that ended up being a positive because you right. weren't distracted by the negotiations of like, did I demand too much? Did I have taken their last offer? It was just, let's go. We're trying this case and don't ever look back. Yeah. And so um, we just decided that we were going to stand up for this family and and hold this guy accountable and, and hopefully bring them some peace uh, by having a jury speak the truth about what happened. Render, yeah. is this the I'm sorry, Steve, is this okay. the place that's like when you're driving from Athens and like you're trying to hit um, like get on 20 to go yes. to Augusta or whatever? It's the place that you pass on that like two lane road. Yes. OK, yeah. sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> I've driven by big, it many times. It's a big facility. They they claim on their website they have six thousand acres. Um, and that was one of the reasons. But this the 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 fact that we knew that there was no insurance. Uh, that was one of the reasons why we named so many of the corporate entities and the trust um, as defendants in the case. And that was a, a significant part of our discovery work and our investigation. Um, and uh, we're hopeful that having tagged all of those entities will be able to recover the verdict on behalf of the family.
So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. One thing, just so everybody understands, so I, I named a number of defendants in the case. One is the, the it was the owner himself, Robert McCommons, and then the the park was Durham Off Town Off Road Park. But then there's also Durham Town Farms, Durham Town Pro Shop, Georgia Trails and Rentals, and then Two Rivers Irrevocable Trust, and Robert McCommons as the trustee. Um, and and I could tell from your the presentation that you sent to us that a, a big part of the case was. Uh, showing that the all of these entities were in a joint enterprise or, or were, you know, essentially this was one big business operating as one together instead of a whole bunch of different ones. But that had to be just another huge obstacle as far as, you know, making the jury understand that that you've got all these different um, uh, entities and that they all needed to be treated as one entity um, and not as, as separate entities, which is I'm, I'm sure was why they set them up this way was to, you know, create some protection from liability uh, in case something bad happened. That's right. And I, a shout out to my friends in Minneapolis, Mark Kozarowski and Joel Smith, who do nursing home cases and they uh, I've worked with them and I borrowed the the pleading that they include in their nursing home cases about how the, all of these because nursing homes typically try to divvy up and sort of create sort of arms that the and subsidiaries that hold the actual nursing home so that you can't get to the mothership and get to the real assets. And so we pled that kind of complaint of joint enterprise alter ego, failure, failure to observe the corporate form. And, and the trial court was great. They, they um, compelled the defendants to produce all of their tax records and bank records. And we were able to establish that they set it up 
correctly. I mean, they had incorporated and formed the trust and all of these things, but they totally ignored the rules of how you run a, co a corporation. You know, the land was held by the trust and the other entities were using the land, but they weren't paying any rent. Um, they all operated under the same, you know, um, domain name. None of the employees knew which entity they worked for. Um, some of the employees had never even heard of the other entities. And McCommons in trial, we established that he basically walked around with five checkbooks in his glove, <laughs> glove box. And he just, whichever one was on top was the one he used to pay his medical bill or his mortgage or whatever. And, um, and so he had failed to observe the corporate form. And so we pled it in a number of ways and we just made the verdict form very simple that gave the jury the opportunity to check whatever boxes it thought were appropriate. And they checked all the boxes and tagged all of them jointly and severally for the $22 million. So we're optimistic that we'll be able to uh, actually achieve uh, a recovery on behalf of the family. Right. I'm, right. I'm so glad you brought that up because my experience, especially um, in that type of scenario is usually is, is drafting the complaint and then responding to the inevitable motion to dismiss or motion for summary judgment about alter ego and joint venture type allegations. And it's such a, I mean, obviously it's a challenge what you had to show the jury and get them to find, but it's also such a challenge that if you don't plead it right from the beginning, um, it can be really tough, at least in Georgia. I don't know elsewhere about elsewhere. You know, you've really got to get all those different theories in there and make sure you plead it carefully because there are some bad cases in Georgia or difficult cases in Georgia that might prevent you from ever telling the jury what was really going on with the with the different entities. So I was reading that complaint. I was like, this is really good. I'm going to remember this. <laughs> I wish I said I wish I could say I wrote the complaint. I mean, it, it, that we really just borrowed allegations from Mark and Joel, who are geniuses. Yeah. Well, um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you mentioned it already, but you know, as we know, this has a heightened burden uh, because the because of the waiver that was signed and because of uh, assumption of the risk. So essentially, you are trying this to a, a willful wanton or a gross negligence uh, standard. Um, but it, it seemed to me that part of the defense in this case, and, and, and I think you mentioned that because uh, Mr. McCommons denied that the tree fell and hit uh, Dr. White, um, which was that that the tree was already down, I, I'm assuming was his his defense and that he just hit the doc, that Dr. White just hit a tree that was down, which would be sort of, you know, part of the risk of, of riding on the, you know, this park. Um, and so it be, I'm, I'm sure it became a big point of contention, whether the tree fell and hit Dr. White or whether or not Dr. White hit a tree. Is that Am I stating that right? You are. That was one of the one of the primary issues in proving the case. And um, that was their defense that um, that Dr. White hit a fallen tree. Um, it was also their defense. And this was the other issue that we asked the jury to decide that he that Mike McCommons didn't knock the tree down. It was already down. He was just in the area. It was purely a coincidence that the shovel of his track hoe was digging downward into the base of where the tree had been standing. Um, and he left it in that configuration when the sheriff's deputies and the coroner arrived. They look at this backhoe in the woods, stabbing into the trunk of the tree that's fallen and killed Adam White. So it was I talked to the jurors afterwards. And, you know, lawyers, we can separate out logical issues like that. Like question one, <laughs> did Mike McCommons knock the tree down? Question two, did 
the tree fall onto Adam or did Adam strike a fallen tree? And so we can kind of separate those out logically. That's how we work. But the jury is just like it was just one big issue for them. And it was primarily they focused. They never even really discussed whether Mike knocked the tree down. It was obvious that he knocked the tree down, but they battled for a while. They only deliberated for two and a half hours, but they they battled for a little while about whether Adam had struck a tree that was already down or whether the tree fell onto him. And it is hard to imagine the timing of this is so awful. If he had come along five seconds earlier, he would have come to a stop. If he had come along five seconds later, the tree would have fallen behind him and he wouldn't have even known it happened. Um, The timing was perfectly imperfect, but, um, but the, the evidence was overwhelming. There was really no other way it could have happened. The coroner uh, signed a death certificate saying motorcyclist struck by tree. Um, and the GBI did an autopsy. And uh, in the cause of death, they said motorcyclist struck by falling tree. And, the, and then we had Kelly Kennett, a biomechanical expert, come in and testify, who really just kind of brought everything together uh, the damage to the bike, the damage to the helmet, the damage to the chest guard, why the helmet was able to come off, um, what the da- what the injuries would have been if Adam had struck a fallen tree. They would be totally different. Right. You would slide forward. Your your pelvis would fracture on the gas tank. Your legs would get caught in the handlebars and you would end up beyond the bike. The bike would be mangled. And you would end up over the handlebars and it would be tree, bike, body. And in this situation, it was tree, body, bike. And the bike kept going straight. So it wasn't if you'd struck an object laterally and the damage was to the left handlebar, damage to the left handlebar, if it happens laterally, is going to do what? It's going to turn the steering wheel and the bike's going to end up over in the woods. But the Mm -hmm. bike kept going straight. And so Adam's injuries and the uh, the what what was broken and what wasn't broken in Adam and what damage was on the bike and wasn't on the bike. All of that pointed to only one possible explanation. And that was the awful timing of what happened. Yeah, I was just wondering, I mean, because I saw the um, I saw the exhibits that uh, the uh, Kelly Kennett uh, had and, and it looked like most of the injury was to his head and, and upper body. And then, and then it also looked like the motorcycle was fairly undamaged or, Pristine. you know, and, and so you would think that if it had hit a tree, that the motorcycle is going to be, you know, pretty damaged. Um, so I, when I, when I was just looking at that, it seemed fairly obvious what I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just wondering what was the defense's evidence that he hit a tree and not, uh, and not the tree hit him. That's a good question. I never really understood it. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, um, you know, they just um, I, I think they were relying on, you know, just the incredible imperfect timing of of the way we were saying it had to happen. But, you know, they crossed Kelly on some issues and they they tried to cross the GBI pathologist on some issues. Um, but uh, they, they, you know, they they stole the clothes and you know what that means, Steve. But in right. Georgia, if you're the defendant and you present no evidence and no witnesses, then you get the right to start and finish with the closing argument. So they decided that was important. So they didn't call any witnesses. Uh, we called everybody already anyway, um, but um, they really didn't have any competent evidence that it happened any differently. And yet the jury still like deliberated and thought about whether he hit a falling tree or the, whether he hit the tree or the tree hit him. So. 
Were you worried, um, you know, just talking about the timing and when I was reading about this case and just thinking about just the awful, you know, statistical likelihood of, of, of that timing, were you worried that the jury would, regardless of the fact that the only reason the tree fell is because they were doing something that they weren't supposed to do, that, that it would just be because it it feels like such a freak accident that the jury would just treat it that way, regardless of how they were instructed on the law. Yeah. Like maybe it was a God thing. It was, it was time for Adam to go. This is such an awful circumstance, but you know, it was his time to go because of the timing being so extraordinary. But um, I did worry about that a little bit, but we had such opposition, such nonsensical opposition to obvious points and the story, they had a whole story about, where Mike McCommons was on the excavator, he was way away from the track. And that's when he noticed a bike down on the track. And so he wanted to go up to the track in order to provide aid. And that's when he got stuck and he didn't knock the tree down. And he, it was a coincidence that his shovel was in the tree, but you know, he didn't knock the tree down. So they were fighting it factually that he didn't knock the tree down. And it was a pretty rotten tree. If you've seen the pictures, mm-hmm. you, you can see the cross section of the, of the trunk of the tree and it's pretty rotten. So, you know, I think they were hoping that they could convince the jury or the jury would just kind of do a little nullification and say, well, the tree was rotten. It probably fell all by itself. And, and, and it maybe it did fall on to Adam and kill him that way. But, you know, there's no eyewitness. There's no, you know, evidence other than the way Mike McCommons left his uh, his track hoe configured around the scene. It was all circumstantial. So I was pretty nervous about the circumstantial evidence, but they helped us by telling these absurd stories. And mm-hmm. and, and we enumerated all the lies that he told in his deposition. And then he told Two or three more, we thought, during the trial. So, and they were obvious. Um, yeah. So, so talk about that a little bit. So, uh, with uh, Mr. McCommons, how he uh, did you call him for a cross in your in your case in chief? Yes. And then, and talk about what some of his testimony was. And I guess we, I, I want to make sure I understood. You're saying that. I mean, they're admitting the excavator was where it was and the tree was where it was, but that he wasn't on the excavator uh, when all this happened. No, he was on the excavator when all it happened, but he was down in the woods way away from where this tree was. But he was able to see from down there up onto the track and he noticed the bike being down on the track and he thought, "Uh oh, I'm going to go see what's going on and make sure nobody's hurt. But he's got a radio in his hand when he's doing that. And he could have radioed for 911 or that they've got a paramedic on site and they could have radioed for the paramedic. So his story of like, I'm going to take five minutes to dawdle up the hill and then I'm going to get stuck and I'm going to try to thrash around to get unstuck instead of just getting off the track hoe and walking up to the track to see what happened or radioing right away. It just did not make any sense. The story that he was trying to offer. Oh, wow. And, and so was there, I mean, I, I don't know if you'd be able to prove this or not. Was there a five minute delay before he called 911 or called emergency services? He, of his own testimony, said that it took him, a, you know, he said it was about a minute and a half. Uh, and, and one thing we haven't talked about is that he crossed the bomber trail, the trail that Adam was riding on. He crossed that trail right before all of this happened in the track hoe. So he's 
this thing goes two miles an hour and weighs 30,000 pounds or something. And he's crossing a track that's got, that's open and has motorcyclists on it. And he thankfully gets across the track, but he is within a hundred feet of where Adam will eventually die. And so, and the, the sheriff's deputies in their body cams and in the photos they took, you can see the track marks of the excavator where it crossed the track. And it was actually, it crossed at an angle and it crossed at an angle that would have pointed Mike in the direction of where this had all happened. And so I think part of their thing was they wanted to say, oh, it had already happened at that point. Mike just didn't notice it. But we had these track marks that showed him crossing the track, pointing towards the scene, what would be the scene. And we showed him these photos and he said, no, no, those track marks are pointing away from where, you know, I was pointing away from where Adam would be killed. So it's still possible that Adam was already dead on the track at that time. So it was but the pictures were obvious that it was pointed towards him. So he was just it was it was bizarre. It was um um, I, I, I couldn't quite understand how he expected anybody to believe that. And did he ad- admit that working with the excavator at, you know, while there were motorcyclists or people using yeah. the track was a violation of his own rules and regulations? Well, of course, he had some excuse for that, that he was able to assess and he knew that it was safe. Um, and he tried to sort of modify that rule different than what he'd said at his deposition. And he was trying to say, no, it's really about you can't leave the heavy equipment near the track because motorcyclists might go off the track and strike the heavy equipment. But it was obviously that he had you know, realized he shouldn't have said what he said at his deposition and was trying to change it. But hmm. he fully admitted that he was on the track and um, he was the one operating it. What, what was the um, sort of uh, reputation of uh, Mr. McCommons in the in the track there in in Greene County? Because I know there had been a, a verdict a few years before involving a, a a boy that was riding and hit a, a exposed pipe and lost his leg. I think is that what what his injury was? He, he lost a lot of leg function. It's a, it okay. essentially um, it might as well. Uh, my understanding is is it, it might as well have been an amputation because of the damage that was done to his leg. Um, as far as you know, I. I I didn't know this going in, but my impression is that the county officials are pretty frustrated with Durhamtown, that they are the ambulances are always going out there. Um, people are always getting hurt. It's it's not a safe place. It's really. And, and when the ambulance goes, the sheriff's deputies follow, you know, and they do an investigation and they've done multiple investigations out there. And I think. I think they've become sort of uh, weary of having to deal with what happens out at Durhamtown. And of course, motorcycle riding and the other activities are dangerous and people get hurt out there in situations where it has nothing to do with Mike McCommons or the way he's running it. It's dangerous stuff. But um, but they ended up the the deputies and the coroner uh, ended up being very friendly witnesses willing to testify, willing to come to trial um, and explain what their investigation was. So that was a big bonus for the family. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. 
Yes, yes, a lot more working from the computer. Yes, and only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now. Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. Looking at the presentation and the evidence, so, so obviously you were able to get the uh, jury to find gross negligence, uh, you know, against uh, Mr. McCommons, um, as well as the uh, as the companies involved, was there ever any thought by law enforcement to look at criminal charges against him? That's why I think it ended up with a GBI autopsy, um, and the family was very frustrated. They thought that you know there should have been criminal charges. Um, uh, the DA declined. He did not even try to indict McCommons. Didn't call a grand jury on the issue. Um, the uh, I noticed that when we when we had Mr. McCommons on the stand, uh, one of the assistant DAs was in the courtroom kind of watching how he would perform as a witness. So I don't know if they've still got plans to pursue anything, whether they were kind of waiting to see what we came forward with in terms of evidence. Um, but on the gross negligence thing, that was that was really interesting. The, the, the and we just we just embrace the release. We put it into evidence. We talked about it in in 
in uh, opening statement. We showed it to them. We we identified it and put it in. Um, and, uh, you know, it it included the loophole of willful and wanton conduct. Uh, it didn't include gross negligence, but the law sort of inserts that language. So we're like defining in the jury charge what is willful negligence, what is wanton negligence, what is gross negligence. And then we had a 13611 claim for attorney's fees. We had to define bad faith. Right. Yeah. You know, and so they and I told him in jury in, in the closing argument, I said, look, if you guys want the printed jury charge, ask for it. The judge might be mad with me for saying this right now, but this there's a lot of stuff here that you're going to grapple with. And we want you to have all of the information you need to make the decision. So I don't think they cared very much about the release. I think most people feel like, man, every time I update my iPhone, I'm signing some release and it's yeah. just some garbage that lawyers are making a sign. So I don't think they put much credence in it. Um, they spent most of their time deliberating on whether the tree fell and hit him uh, or whether he hit the tree. And then they deliberated um, I think they deliberated about bad faith for about an hour about whether they would add attorney's fees and the defenders in that situation uh, that didn't want to do attorney's fees said, well, she signed that contract. She agreed to pay those fees. So she needs to live with the contract that she has. So that was an interesting little mm. way. You mean, you mean signed your contract? Yeah. The, yeah oh, okay. The, Debbie, yeah. you know, the, the or um, Debbie, the spouse that hired me, she signed a contract. She agreed to pay those fees. So she's made that decision. That's she's got to live by her decision. And they, that was how they kind of fought off the jurors that wanted to add fees. And we had several that wanted to add fees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, um, talk. Let's let's move to damages in this case. Um, and talk about how you went about and, and you know, one thing I didn't do a good job of uh, talking about in, in, in the facts of this case is that Dr. White was uh, an orthodontist, uh, 47 years old, uh, his wife, Debbie, three daughters, and I understand three grandkids as well. Yes. Um, and so and obviously a very active person, one of the one of the um, uh Slides you have shows him on the front of a uh, of a magazine of some sort called Inside Gates, where he's uh, he's called the man who's larger than life. So obviously he sounded like he was quite the character. Um, but talk uh, talk about uh, Dr. White and then uh, how you went about presenting uh, the damages for wrongful death in this case. Well, um, you know, I never met Adam um, and uh, it's a strange thing. Steve, I think y'all have probably tried wrongful death cases and you're you're in Georgia, you're presenting how this person felt about their own life. So you're really it's a very uh, intense process. And um, I, I feel like I came to know Adam. I really did want the jury to know him. I felt the tragedy of his loss. I mean, he was a big character, a big goofball to some extent. I mean, his favorite holiday, most of the pictures that the family gave us were these crazy costumes that he would wear, you know, on Halloween oh, or yeah. any, any opportunity, he would dress up in this crazy costume and go, go into the office that way and work on kids' teeth, you know, as <laughs> Batman or as a six foot, cause he's a big guy. He's six, four, two forty you know, a big troll with the shoot up hair and, uh, and face makeup. And, you know, um, he, he was a, he was a playful, fun, joyful guy. Um, 
And he was a generous guy. Uh, one of the people that came to watch closing argument was a young man that he'd met out at Durham town and couldn't afford braces. And Adam did his braces for free. Um, so it's a, it's a special thing to get to stand up for somebody who's gone and can't stand up for themselves. So it was, a, it was a really a special week for me. And, uh, and I hope it was, you know, the goal we told the jury in opening and closing that the, this case is about declaring the truth and giving this family some peace. And, um, and over the course of the week, it, it got eerie. Um, and I really felt Adam's presence and I, I felt like he was not at rest. And um, I talked to the jury about that in closing argument that, that um, I don't think he's at rest because his family's not at peace. His family's not at peace because the truth isn't out about what happened to him. And it's so hard to forgive people when they're lying about what happened. Um, and so we really, we, we really had some lofty goals. Um, and I, I'm hoping that we made some difference for the family aside from money. Yeah. Yeah. That just makes me think too, about what it's, what's can be so hard when you can't take a case, you know, for one reason or another, because so often the families really just want the truth out there. And, you know, it's not about the money. They don't care if they win, you know, or that's not at least what it's about. It's just about having somebody find answers. I just, it's just, it's so nice when you're able to do that. And so hard when you have to tell someone you can't do that for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I do a lot of medical malpractice work and you got to say no to 95% of the people oh, that yeah. call you and it's awful. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, talk a little bit, Rinder, about which um, family members, obviously you must have put Debbie, his wife on the stand and what other family members did you call to sort of paint the picture of, uh, of Adam and, and who he was? His, uh, his middle daughter, um, um, Victoria was actually out at the facility with him. She didn't see anything happen, but she shows up on the body cams. And normally I don't think I would have called her to the stand, but I felt like the jury needed to hear from her that she did not see anything. She doesn't know what happened. She was very nearby and she saw his body, um, hmm. and, and essentially knew what had happened. She was 17 at the time. So I didn't want to re-traumatize her at all, but we did call Victoria, um, to make that clear. And then for her to share some stories about her dad. And, um, I, I, um, <laughs> you know, I guess they say it's easier to better to get forgiveness than permission, but, um, I put her on the stand and she, they had the rule of sequestration. So she was not present in the courtroom until the day she took the stand. And I put her on the stand and put her under oath. And I just looked at her and said, Everybody in this courtroom has a broken heart for you. This is a safe place. Can we talk about your dad? And she was tearful, but strong. And we, she was on the stand for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, but she told really sweet stories about how much she loved her dad and how much fun they had together and how um, she would help him when kids would call and their braces were busted. He'd say, come on over to the house and she'd help him you know, hold the flashlight or hand him the tools. And she's studying to be a dental hygienist now. So she's sort of following in his footsteps. But we called Debbie, we called Victoria, we called Adam's father-in-law, Debbie's father, Mike uh, Randall, who is this sweet, 
guy, just a sweetheart of a guy and was nervous, didn't want to make a mistake. And I was just constantly reassuring him, you know, just be yourself. Just tell some stories about Adam and how much you loved him. And he talked about meeting Adam the first time and knowing immediately that he was the right guy for for his daughter. And, you know, that, and he talked about kind of all the, those scoundrels that Debbie would bring around before she brought around Adam. And it was really endearing. And, and then the final, final witness who was a sort of a blended family friend and almost a quasi expert was a young man in his twenties named Spencer East, who was Adam's riding coach. So he taught Adam how to ride and coached him and rode with him. He'd ridden with him on the very trail where Adam was killed. So he was able to talk about Adam's riding style. Um, Adam is way too big to be a motocross guy. I mean, most of them are like, you know, five, seven, 150 pounds and mm -hmm. Adam's six, four, 240. Um, but, you know, he wanted to be a motocross rider and Spencer was his coach and, um, Spencer was able to say, you know, based on his experience of, of working with Adam and seeing him ride and riding with him on this trail, how fast he would have been going when he rounded this turn and that he would have been able to stop if there'd been a tree down in the in the track at that point easily. No problem. Um, Spencer actually went and picked up the bike uh, for, and, and took it to the funeral and spoke at the funeral. Um, and that was an interesting thing that happened sort of spontaneously. You know, we we talk about the value of life and 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 I think we tend to sort of focus on like all the happy times, you know, the marriages, the births of children and stuff like that. But we we kind of took the opportunity to talk about what Spencer did and and to be there for that family and to go get the bike and to come to the funeral and to speak about Adam. No, that's not a joyful experience. That's not something that we that we want to be in a position to need to do, but it is a beautiful thing to be that person and to be there for that family. And that is a, 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 a important, meaningful moment. And so we talked about that with the jury that it's not just about these joyful, happy times, but there were going to be times where Adam was going to be there for people and to help people. And he's not there anymore. And so he didn't get to have those rewarding experiences that maybe were terribly sad, but were the opportunity for him to be a good friend and a good person. So it was a, a lot of little stuff kind of bubbled up that we didn't plan. And we didn't plan any of the direct examinations of the family. We just, I'd had conversations with them. We, we, I'd, I'd met with them and we told stories about Adam. And then at the end of the meetings, I would say, that's going to be the way we're going to direct you. We're just going to chase yeah. rabbits and tell stories and let the people understand who Adam was. And it was, it was really special. And uh, I think um, cathartic, hopefully for the family. Yeah, I think I think that's important in, a, in a, a great way to do it, because a lot of times those directs for family members, you know, who've lost a loved one, they, they can be really hard to prepare for. And, and 
it's easy to over prepare, almost uh, almost scare the clients into thinking they've got to say exactly the right thing. I, I think it's important to sort of let them know you just want to talk from the heart and you just want the jury to know how you felt about your, you know, your father or your husband. Yeah. And trust your instincts. If, if you're on the stand and some story comes up that maybe I haven't heard, you know, go for it. You know, we're, we're not afraid. The truth is on our side and we need to feel relaxed and spontaneous and, and candid about who this person was not choreographed or scripted. And boy, did Debbie just knock our socks off. She, you know, she gave beautiful testimony. She told this just endearing stories about how Adam courted her. And, you know, one of the meaningful things was that she was 21 and he was 20 and she's working at a car dealership as a service intake person. And he comes in to bring his car in and starts, you know, flirting with her and talking. She sees, she talks about seeing him leaning on the Coke machine and thinking, boy, that guy's <laughs> handsome. And next thing you know, he's coming back the next day into this service bay with all of her coworkers around her. And he's bringing her this big bouquet of flowers and handing her the flowers in front of everybody and asking her out to dinner. And she says, yes, and goes, to dinner. Well, what he didn't know at that point is that Debbie already had a two-year-old daughter. And when he found out that Debbie had a two-year-old daughter, this 20-year-old guy did not bat an eye. You know, that was just icing on the cake of, of being in a relationship with Debbie. And he quickly became her father and adopted her. And, uh, and so that was a really poignant story. I I knew that, and I knew that we would get to it, but then at the end, after she'd done this beautiful job, I I threw up the softball. I was like, uh, you know, I think we're done, but is there anything else that you think this jury needs to know about Adam? And she says, well, I'd like to read you the last text message he ever sent Hmm. me. And she reads this text message that he sent to her like at two o'clock, he dies at like four 30 center at two o'clock. And it's like, every husband should send their wife that text message. Like, and I, and I sent my wife that text message (laughs) on the lunch break. And she, I didn't know about the text message. I didn't, it was totally spontaneous. And all I could say when she was done reading the text message, I just looked at her and I said, you have got to be kidding me. (laughs) Because she's not, not, I am not kidding you. And like, all the guys in the jury. I mean, we had seven men and five women. And like, I think everybody is crying in the jury box. The court reporter said she was fighting back tears. I turn around and my associate, Brittany Partridge, is just all her makeup is gone. She's got just tears rolling down her face. But it was a really sweet moment. And it was honest and spontaneous. And I think that's why it was so impactful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I, I hate to turn it from from that, you know, uh, such a touching story, but to talk about a, a little bit into the some other parts of it. Talk a little bit about, you know, we we mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, this is Green County. Uh, it's a rural county, um, you know, uh, not known as being a, a you know, a, a um, liberal county is obviously a very conservative county. Um, talk about your jury selection and and your jury makeup and how you decided to uh, theme the case based on, you know, who you were trying the case to. 
Well, I was really curious going out there, Steve, because I, I knew that, you know, Greene County is not what it was 20 years ago. It's got the Ritz-Carlton. It's got, you know, all of the Reynolds Plantation stuff. It's got golf courses everywhere. There's a, I've got some friends that have retired out there, some sort of like, you know, corporate management guys and gals. And so I was curious how many of those folks would show up on the jury. And, you know, those folks are pretty conservative too. Um, but they understand the value of money. Mm-hmm. And and so we found in, in talking to the jury afterwards that we had a real blend. We had we had some, you know, transplanted Green County people that were totally on our side and wanted to give us everything we asked for plus fees. And then there were some uh, local folks that were totally for us and wanted to give us a lot more than what they did. And then there were some local folks that were more conservative. And I, I think they got, um, we had some folks on the jury, some young men that were in the landscaping business. And I think they felt a little bit like this could happen to me, you know? And um, so we had a, a, a diverse group, men and women and racially diverse. Um, and during jury selection, you know, um, we handled a few things. We, we the, the judge was great. Amanda Petty is a fantastic state court judge. I think she's going places. But um, uh, I was grateful for her work ethic and her attention to detail and her courage to rule on things. But she let us I, I suggested because we focus group the case and we did a we did a mock jury selection in preparation for trial. And I found that like so much of the early interaction was them trying to figure out what had happened. What is this case about? And so I I went to the judge and said, how about you let us each give a 40 second, 30 second opening statement about what we think the case is about so that they kind of get the basics. And then we can go into, you know, jury selection questions. And she let us do that. And so we both gave our little mini openings, less than 30 seconds. Um, And then I started off with, um, you know, a lot of people think that anybody that gets on a motorcycle and gets hurt has nobody to blame but themselves. And I get it. You know, I feel a little bit that way. I don't I don't ride motorcycles. You know, who else feels that way? And uh, we had a robust discussion. We had a lot of people raise their hands on that. And um, and we had a lot of people struck for cause because they they admitted that they couldn't let go of their personal bias that you, if you get on a motorcycle and get hurt, then, you know, sorry, but you shouldn't have gotten on the motorcycle. Doesn't matter how it happened. You know, it was dangerous and shouldn't have done it. But um, so we got a lot of strikes for cause, I think seven or eight on that. Um, and then we talked about, you know, money a lot. We talked about, you know, um, how people feel about money and whether it's a, a good idea to give a family money when somebody's been killed and um, didn't get a whole lot of pushback on that. Um, we talked a lot about the burden of proof. That was very important. You know, this has sort of a criminal feel to it, you know? Right. And so we talked about the football field analogy and how we, all we have to do is on each issue, we have to get it over the 50 yard line. We think we're going to put it in the end zone, but all we got to do is get it in the, uh, across the 50 yard line. And they, they echoed that back to us when we talked to them afterwards, they got that and it made sense to them. Um, and uh, they even said, you know, we, we thought that it was in the end zone, but the other juror, you know, we were fighting with him and we were like, come on, man, he at least got it over the 50 yard line. So they're using <laughs> that analogy uh, as a tool to, to win the case for us. So um, jury selection was good. Um, 
she let us uh, address the whole group at once and have immediate feedback and crosstalk and who else feels that way. Not the, and it went quickly. You know, I think that goes a lot faster than the let's ask all the general questions and see who says yes. And then make number one stand up and talk for five, 10 minutes each. You know, that's a terrible way to do it. But um, so it was a it was a great way. uh, And we were thankful for Judge Petty and her flexibility on that. I um, I hate to ask you this because I don't want to take anything away from your tremendous result. But I'm wondering I'm so interested in what they said about attorney's fees. Um, And I'm, I'm wondering if you thought about that since about how you would. I don't know, preemptively address that line of thought next time if you had the chance. And and before you answer that, I just want to tell everybody what the jury said on it, because they said um, that they found in favor of the plaintiff for attorney's fees and expenses of litigation against all of the defendants, but then awarded zero attorney's fees and expenses. So, yeah, I mean, that that is a a, a, a good question on what their thought process was there. Well, so it, what you don't know is that uh, the the. The, the bailiff tells us that we have a verdict. We come into the courtroom, the, the jury parades in, back into the jury box right in front of our table. And have you reached a verdict? Yes. Is it the true and correct? Blah, blah, blah. blah. Yes. Um, hand it to the bailiff and the bailiff hands it to the judge and the judge flips to the second page and the second page is blank. They didn't put anything on attorney's fees. And she summons us to the bench. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? And of course, I see the 22 on the first page and all. Oh, the you, you saw that before they announced it? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, my and, God. And they were bummed about that. They were really bummed <laughs> because they the, the one of the jurors that I spoke with afterwards said we really wanted to like publish the verdict and see the family's reaction. Yeah. But, but so she called us to the bench and we, she showed us the first page and I'm like, I'm I actually, I put <laughs> yeah. like a thumbs up behind my back so right, that the right. family can see it's all good. <laughs> and then she turned to the second page and nothing is checked. And she said, what do you want us to do? And I said, well, I think we know what they're trying to tell us. Um, and the defense lawyer, Ben Fearman said, no, I think they've got to go back and they've got to fill it out. And so she sent them back in to fill it out. I was really worried that it was going to somehow undo the consensus and they were going to revoke the first verdict and get back into fighting. I don't think they even sat down in the jury room. They paraded right back in and they told us that they didn't want to do anything to mess up the main verdict. And they were worried that if they checked in favor of the defendant, that it might mess up the first verdict. So I I thought it was funny and, uh, you know, and, and kind of, they just didn't want to be on his side on anything. Mm -hmm. The the idea of finding in favor of the defendants just was repulsive to them. So Mm -hmm. that was, that was nice. But, um, you know, I, I think what we hit is we hit a money wall where $22 million was an unimaginable amount of money and anything past that felt like greed. Mm -hmm. Um, and so uh, and and several people wanted to give us the full 40 uh, percent verdict. I testified in the case and talked about the risks we take and the expenses we incurred. And but they, can, I, can I just stop you on that? When you sure. testified in the case, did your associate direct you or yeah. how, how did? OK. All right. I, I was just wondering yeah. how that how that went. And was there any cross examination? No. OK. <laughs> I was disappointed. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, and, but, uh, so 
I think that we hit a money wall and there were, mm-hmm. there were several people that wanted to give us the eight. And both of those guys were Reynolds plantation, retired executives, or, or even continuing to work. Cause you can get up to Lawrenceville pretty quickly from, from down there. You just cut through some farmland and you're in Lawrenceville. And, um, so, uh, you know, people just felt like that is an ungodly amount of money. If she ends up with, you know, uh, $14 million, then, and they don't know that there's no insurance. So I think they just felt like they'd done enough and that anything past that was unnecessary. Well, and and that does bring up a good point because I see your uh, economist, um, uh, table that you have here and it, it you you it looks like you gave them two scenarios one one scenario essentially put the uh lost earnings and lost household services uh lost earnings future and past one puts it at uh, a little bit over 18 million and then the second scenario put it uh, a little bit over 21 million 21.8 million so almost 22 million dollars um so i i so I'm wondering what would, what did the jury say about how they came up with 22 million? Because I'm assuming I don't know if if you had a specific ask uh, for you know for a verdict, but I mean if you talk about you know the value of life to um, to to um, to Doctor White, you know it's it's much more than just what he would have earned, uh, and much more than what he would have um, you know his household services. So what was the? I mean, I, I I heard what you said about the the money wall, but just what did they talk about? Why they stopped it? 22 million or, uh, you know, along those lines, you know, the people that were, that were resistant to more money, um, you know, I, and, and that's the challenge that I'm facing and trying to work on. Um, we, we did do a specific ask. We asked for a million dollars a year and he had a 30 year life expectancy. So we asked for an aggregate of $52 million. And, you know, I think that people, whether they talk about it in jury selection or not, um, they have a real problem with giving money for years of life. And uh, and the folks that were resistant to that um, were willing to give the 22 as the rounded up figure for the lost wages. And that had a purpose. Right. I mean, we're taking care of the family. He's got three daughters. Um, you know, he's got a, a wife that doesn't work outside the home. And so, you know, we need to take care of this family and make them financially whole. And I, I think the money wall is a big part of not wanting to go further. But, um, you know, I think there's a general distaste for uh, exchanging money for life. And we talked about it during closing argument. I mean, I, I, I told them that, you know, that money is totally inadequate. It's obviously totally inadequate, um, but it's all we have. And so we have to work with it. Um, But, um, you know, and and this, you know, this case had a lot of anger in it. Uh, The liability stuff is infuriating and all the lies that he was telling. So I I think that they really they want to help. They want to make a difference. And just putting 30 million dollars in there arbitrarily um, to basically, I think they saw it as a punishment. They didn't, they didn't feel the need to punish beyond $22 million. You know, I, I've heard from jurors before that sometimes they worry that if they give a, a verdict, that's too big, that it'll get reversed or that it won't 
hold up and they want to make sure that it holds up. And, and obviously you want to tell them, let us worry about that. But, um, you know, did, was there any sort of sentiment like that, like that they, they, you know, they wanted their verdict to count. They wanted to make sure that what, you know, they, they awarded was, was what was actually recovered. Um, they did not talk about recovery. Um, and, uh, the, the portion of the release that Adam signed that stated that there was no liability insurance, the defendant asked that to be redacted. And so that was redacted. Um, they didn't see that sentence. Um, but, but uh, the jurors that were fighting for us said that they became concerned. They, they kind of crossed the bridge and got the 22, got that locked down. And then they started debating about uh, additional money for the years of lost life. And they, they, and then of course, also the attorney's fees. And they started getting worried that they were going to push too hard against their fellow jurors. And they were going to unwind the agreement that they'd already reached, reached on the 22. So they kind of backed off and decided that's good enough. You know, that's going to take care of the family. If they can recover that, let's just you know, and it's a tremendous amount of money. Um, so uh, that that was what we were told afterwards. Okay. Gosh, you got so much good information from this jury. Yeah, no, I, I mean, and it's why it's so great to be able to talk to jurors yeah. afterwards, especially if they're if they're willing to talk, because sometimes they they won't tell you much. But uh, but yeah. it sounds like this jury was was very open with uh, with with what happened during um, during trial and, and what their thought process was. Yeah, they were very kind. Um, we talked to some of them right afterwards, and then uh, one particular juror who was not the foreman. Um, reached out to me via email that night and just like <laughs> said these really kind things. And we ended up going out to lunch and talking about the case for a couple of hours. And that's where most of my detailed information about how the deliberations went. But, um, you know, uh, they were uh, they were patient. You know, we tried the case for a week um, and uh, and they were they were totally attentive the whole time. I never, you know, often you catch jurors sleeping or, you know, and uh, they were just on the edge of their seats. I mean, it was a fascinating trial the, the, yeah. the, and the stuff we're looking at body cam footage and photos and talking to a GBI pathologist about the types of injuries and how the injuries must've occurred. I and mean, it was, it was like a CSI kind of story. It was fun to try. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did want to ask one other question. I saw, I saw in the complaint that it was at least alleged for punitive damages, and it seems like you obviously put up evidence for punitives because you 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 know met the higher standard. And I'm just wondering, was there a decision to not pursue punitive damages, or what? Yeah, what, yeah. we withdrew punitive damages the week before trial. Um, you know, you never know how things are going to sort of shape up uh, or come out during discovery. And we explained, um, you know, the the fact that there'd be a $250,000 cap and we didn't want the jury to think that they could put the big money in that part of the verdict and they wouldn't know that it was going to be written down by the judge. So right. we we withdrew it the week before. <clears throat> Okay. So the, the other part I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, as you mentioned already, there is no insurance for this uh, case. And, and my understanding is that Mr. McCommons sold this property. Was it shortly before the trial to his uh, brother? He and, sold, and they renamed it or something? 
we we you know there was some press coverage about them shutting down and reopening earlier this year and a purported sale to his brother that's going to be part of our post judgment discovery um we do not believe that even the purported sale to his brother included the land because the land is in an irrevocable trust so you you can't sell the trust you right. can't you can't undo the trust um so the land is still held in the trust as far as we know and we're you know taking steps to lock down um and and you know file five phase and notices of judgment against the land okay well um well render this has been just a, a great discussion and and obviously great work and and uh, and i know this sounds like such a deserving family uh, as many of these cases do um I, I just wanted to make sure is there anything else about the um the white versus mccommons case that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you want to make sure that our audience knows about I don't think so. We've, we've covered a lot. You know, um, I, I would I would encourage people to not be afraid of waivers. I don't think juries put very much stock in those. Um, we all feel like we're kind of forced to sign stuff like that and it's not fair. So our focus group was totally dismissive of the waiver. Um, and I think our jury was, too. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the great lessons for me um, is, you know, I've never tried a case with no insurance on the other side. And that was a real gift because I think I said this earlier, but I've got to figure out how to do that in a case that has insurance and how to compartmentalize and set aside the negotiator render and try the case just full forward, you know, full steam ahead and not be second guessing myself about you know, whether we handled the settlement negotiations appropriately. I can give you at least how we've done it in our firm before, and maybe it'll help for anybody who's listening. But um, so if, if, for instance, if I'm getting ready for trial in a case and, you know, I'll, I'll negotiate it up to a point, but if, if I get within a few weeks of trial, I basically don't want to talk about settlement anymore. Um, and so I turn it over to my law partner, uh, Jeff or Jed, uh, and let them uh, do the negotiating. And I, and I just say, if, if you settle it, you know, tell me, uh, you know, but otherwise I'm just getting ready for trial. I don't want to hear about it. Um, because it, it, I find it completely distracting. I find it, you know, like you hate when you get close on it and then you're like, well, should I really, you know, take this extra couple of hours to read this depot, you know, because, uh, you know, I think the case is going to settle. I'd rather not know. Um, and so we try and do that back and forth. So like if Jeff is, uh, is, uh, getting ready to try a case and, and there, then there becomes some negotiations, I'll step in or Jed will step in and we'll, will negotiate the case uh, with the defendants. And that way we we keep the at least the the lawyer who's sort of lead on the case uh, outside of, of the negotiating, because I've uh, me personally, I find it completely distracting and I hate it. I mean, and when I'm within a couple of weeks of trial, that's all I want to do at that point. I just want to try it. I don't want to I don't want to talk about uh, settlement anymore. You know, I think that's I think that's good advice. I think I'll, I'll do that going forward. Um, well, Render, this has been just a, a great uh, a, a great talk and, and some really good tips on trying a case in a uh, in a tough county and for a really deserving family. <clears throat> I want to remind everybody we've been talking about the White versus uh, Robert McCommons and Durhamtown Off Road uh, Park case, which was a verdict of twenty two million dollars uh, earlier this year in twenty twenty April of twenty twenty two. 
um, and uh, was in Greene County, Georgia, which is a, uh, a tough county, as we talked about. And, and our guest has been Rinder Freeman, a partner at Anderson Tate and Carr uh, in Gwinnett County, Georgia. And uh, you can look up Rinder at atclawfirm.com. Uh, Rinder, thank you so much for your time. Thank you both. It's a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.